1: everybody this is andy richter uh then this is another episode of the three questions i am speaking today um with a real uh a juggernaut a comedy juggernaut what doesn't he do um which you know a lot of us think it's too much a lot of us think just judd take it down a notch uh but it's judd apatow it's judd (laughs) apatow everyone's favorite hi
2: how are you I'm uh, delighted to be here. It's 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 about time. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for the call, and it came in. And I had practiced, and I was ready. All right. If you don't cry during
1: this, I'm going to be so mad. I'm always um, crying.
2: You don't have to worry about that. All right. Good. I'm always good, good. on the
1: verge of tears. Good. Well, how are you? Are you in the middle? Of, you're in the middle of uh, publicizing Bubble
2: or the Bubble. The Bubble, which is uh, going to be on Netflix uh, on April 1st, which is our our movie about people in lockdown trying to make a dinosaur action movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you knew someone was going to do it sooner or later. I thought, right, why not right. me? Why don't now, I jump you, in first?
1: I want to know that, like, because, like, at what point, because COVID started about, you know, mid-March 2020. At what point did you say... Oh boy! Somebody's going to make a movie about making a movie during this time. I want to be the person.
2: Like I want to be that idiot. Yeah, <laughs> I want to be the moron who thinks you can make jokes about it. Right. Like people say you know too soon. I'm like, yeah, now. I'm not. Right, right. It's beyond too soon. It, right. It's still happening. But you know, I started taking these long walks on the beach, like 90 minute walks, every morning uh, with my friend Brent Forrester and other friends, and we wouldn't work we would just try not to go insane yeah and then after about three months of that i said to brent maybe as just an exercise let's outline stories just so that we don't have to keep talking about our personal lives right
1: right and sounds like brent's then, an oversharer.
2: exactly brent tells you too much <laughs> and and brent you know wrote for the office and the simpsons and he's hilarious so we just started kicking around different ideas we had and one day i said uh this nba bubble's seems pretty funny. All these guys stuck in a hotel in Florida. That must be tense. You know, they're all used to living the life and they're in some weird Disney hotel. Yeah. And then I thought maybe that's a play, like a play where everyone is seven feet tall. That was the first thought. (laughs) (laughs) And then the second thought was there's all these movies having really difficult times getting through it right now. Jurassic World was going, and uh, White Lotus was uh, talking about going. And I thought, well, that's pretty funny. And People like it when you beat up on actors. You always get a beat up on an actor. Well, yeah. And it it felt like, well, this is the way we could talk about how much isolation sucked. That we all went crazy, we all thought about our lives and what we were doing. And so it's a movie about people having a nervous breakdown in isolation while trying to complete a flying dinosaur action film for the studio. And do you think,
1: do you think that it works in the sense that people can laugh at it because, you know, they're not like, it's not like somebody with a restaurant that's going under that you told a story about, you know, you're telling a story about the peak of non-essential personnel, which is people like you and me, like people that, that make silliness for a living. And, and that, And was that was that a conscious decision? Like, let's see how this affected, you know, histrionic
2: narcissists. Yeah, because I always think what's the point of me and what's the point of any of the work? Uh (laughs) That's what funny people is about. I'm always on the verge of thinking I really shouldn't do this. But during the <laughs> pandemic, there were definitely people who came up to me and said, thank God I got to watch your dumb movie a bunch of times. Yeah. It, it got me through some bad days. I'm sure you've had that too. We all go down the wormhole and find things that just make us really happy. I mean, I can get through a day just listening to old Dick Cavett interviews. Uh-huh. You you, know, you need something <laughs> from the past that used to make you feel good. Yeah. And I thought, well, I, I guess it's worth trying to make people laugh. At some point, we're going to laugh about what a nightmare this has been mm-hmm. and i thought it might be interesting to try to be the first person to figure out how to do that yeah. and also i had nothing to do and i couldn't write about anything but this like for me i couldn't write a movie that took place in the year 1400 or the future yeah so it was like i guess i guess i'll try to talk about right now like rather than make
1: up a different pandemic to you know just Yeah. Do this one. Yeah.
2: The metaphor pandemic. Right. Were you, was the,
1: was the casualty rate ever daunting? I mean, did you ever think? think...
2: I I just was very aware that I didn't want to talk about the disease. Yeah. I I think I meant to never say COVID in the entire movie and just say the pandemic. And I think I, I, one got by me. Someone says COVID once. (laughs) But none of the movie is about the disease. Yeah. No one gets the disease, there's no discussion of it. It really is all about how do we keep working when the world is shut down? And also how do our employers treat us? So uh, some of the satire of the movie is a movie studio that doesn't care how dangerous it is. They just need a flying uh, T-Rex action movie and and how far they'll go to, to get it done. But there's an irony to that because I'm actually making a movie and making a movie about making fun of people who think there's a need to make a movie.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. It does turn back on you, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. I'm you the You just asshole. had to make a movie, didn't you? Yes. I just, I saw the Batman with my daughter last night, and there was a trailer for whatever the Jurassic, Jurassic thing where it's like, oh, it's a, like, it just seems like, they just decided in the last one to throw the dinosaurs into every movie genre there was. Like, there's Western, there's Western dinosaurs, and there's, You know, motorcycle chases in the streets of Rome, dinosaurs. You know, just that's the
2: funny thing about dinosaurs, they're always fun. So, in order (laughs) to make a movie about how hard it is to make a dinosaur movie, I had to actually (laughs) make about 10 15 minutes of a dinosaur movie and learn how to design them and how to make them move. And you realize that even an idiot like me can make it so fun. Yeah. Because it's inherently the most fun thing in the world is right, running right. away or fighting dinosaurs.
1: Were uh, they all CGI? It's pure joy. Did you have any practical dinosaurs or were they all CGI? Uh,
2: they're all CGI. Business? There's a funny joke where Maria Bamford is the uh, plays the mother of my daughter Iris, who plays a TikTok star who's acting in the movie. And she says, oh, I thought it was an elephant in a mask. <laughs> so she, she thought it was practical. And, uh, but... But it was really fun to have something to do because there were two things I did during the pandemic. Well, I was working on three projects and only like in the last three months that I realized that I was a lunatic during the pandemic working. I was making a George Carlin documentary, uh, which will be on in May. And I was writing this book, which was a series of interviews with comedy people called Sicker in the Head, which comes out in a couple of weeks. And I realized that everyone was home. So everybody that normally probably wouldn't do an interview with me for this book, which I do for charity for the eight two six free tutoring charity. Right. That they can't say no because I know they're home. Right. And I know they're they're not doing anything. So I got Letterman and Lynn Manuel, Miranda, and Nathan Fielder and Sasha Baron Cohen and Samantha B. Just everybody was home oh, and that's trapped. Great. That's uh, great. So that was fun.
1: Um did now why cuz i i remember when we were making Talladega nights there was a day when we were actually in Talladega and i was there very lit and for a very limited i didn't shoot much race stuff there uh and i was there one day when you weren't there at the racetrack and they put me in your trailer um which i i oh, guess what they was in there i guess they cleared that with you <laughs> no but what was in there i mean um well they, hey it was really way nicer than my trailer and Did I flushed uh, sorry about the toilet um, <laughs> um but I saw you had it was at least two maybe three dry erase boards outlining yes. upcoming movies mm-hmm. and i that's amazing to me. I can barely do one thing at once like how you know you you just previously said during covid you were you know you were working so much what is what is it in you do you, you think that that just keeps you going 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 and having to you know, go with so many, is that, is that a natural thing to work in such a, like, uh, bifurcated or trifurcated, if that's a word, way?
2: I don't know, because when we were doing Talladega Nights, I was producing, you know, Will and and Adam wrote it, Adam was directing, so I would go in my trailer when I had nothing to do, and I would write Knocked Up. I was writing Knocked Up yeah, on that I tri- remember. race board. Yep. And you're correct that there's something really weird about the fact that I need to overlap. It, and I used to think that it was based on childhood trauma or the need for safety that drove some sort of workaholism. But in the last two days, I think it's ADHD. <laughs> oh, I, really? I, you know, my, my wife, Leslie sent me an article about hoarding because I just save everything. And it said that hoarding often stems from ADHD. And, and I thought, that weirdly sounds correct, but, yeah. but I never thought I had ADHD because I felt organized enough to be productive. Yeah. And I didn't realize that it also makes you hyper-focused in the thing you're interested in. Yes. So, yes. so I'm lost in anything I'm not interested in. And yeah. so lately I think all my weirdness, neurosis and anxiety is partially from being really scattered and maybe that's why I'm just running around in my head cut off, trying to accomplish a bunch of things. Cause I can't sit still in some way.
1: Right. Right. Um, we, and you've been this, you've been kind of comedy obsessed since you were little. I mean, little, yeah. like a, t- like a, like a grade schooler. Tell me, like well, you tell me old. just a quick, you know, you grew up in long Island, correct? Syosset, uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. And, um, um, and tell me about your folks and your family.
2: Well, you know, I you know, I grew up middle class on Long Island and I became obsessed with the Marx brothers, but really weirdly obsessed, like a child reading long books about the <laughs> Marx brothers at like ten years old. I I look back now and, and I, I do wonder what that was, but maybe it's the ADHD, like Harpo, who's more ADHD than Harpo? Yeah, yeah. And Then at some point it became, whatever, the Mike Douglas show, and I'd watch Michael Keaton and Jeff Altman and Jay Leno, and I was obsessed with 70s variety shows, the John Davidson show and Tony Orlando and Don. And then at some point it became the comedy boom of the 80s, and I I used to go to comedy shows when my mom, who had just gotten divorced, was a hostess at a comedy club in Southampton, So I got to meet the comedians. And then I thought, Ooh, I'd like to interview the comedians." So I interviewed them for my high school radio station. And then I'm like, I should do stand up. And then in my senior year, I started doing it Uh and it was an obsession. I remember thinking as a kid, no one is interested in this, but me. So maybe I can get a job. Oh, really? So if everyone wants to be a lawyer or, you you know, a sports cast or whatever your boys like to do, there wasn't one kid who liked comedy in my school, wow. not one. And wow. it made me think I'm going to, I'm going to study up on this thing that no one cares about. Cause I think you could get a career in it due to the lack of competition. And wow. then I moved to LA and I met all the people like you and I realized, Oh, there's about two, 300 weirdos like me and they all live in LA and I like them. Yeah. And it, yeah. It, it, I used to say, it's like, Being the B girl in the Blind Melon video, you walk out and there's everybody.
1: I've used that same metaphor. I said, you know, like, but for me, it was when I started doing improv. It was, I had, I didn't feel like I, I mean, I wasn't unpopular, but I didn't feel like I really knew. I was like, I had friends and everything. But then when I got to improv, it was like, oh, wait a minute. These other people are, like this yeah, and are, i
2: remember i believe i saw you in the real life brady bunch at the geffen theater you did did you do that show there i did i did and uh and uh that blew my mind that was maybe right around when we started the ben stiller show or just before probably before what year I think was that it 90 like e- mm, yeah 91 92 yeah, so in there, so we yeah. started the ben stiller show in that exact time frame and i thought wow, there's some really talented people out there. Yeah. I mean, that crushed so hard. You guys recreating Brady Bunch episodes. It was pandemonium in that theater. Who else was in that cast?
1: Uh, it was Jane, me, Jane, it was Jane, Jane Lynch. Lynch. Jane Lynch, a yeah. uh, woman named Mary Weiss uh, played Alice. Um, my ex-sister-in-law, Becky Thire, was uh, yes. Marsha Brady, and she was sort of the inspiration uh, for the whole the whole thing, but just really talented Chicago actors. I mean, it kind of, it kind of, you know, rotated a little bit. They, yeah. you know, they, they, uh, the, the parts. I mean, I wasn't. I was Mike Brady. I was the dad, and it's like anybody could slap on a wig and do that one. So it was very easy. <laughs> but it still,
2: it still got such huge, yeah. huge laughs. Yeah, that. yeah, It was funny, and I remember meeting uh, the Soloways at a, a party or two around that, and feeling very intimidated. You yeah. just felt the greatness. Yeah. And as a young neurotic person, just trying to figure out where I fit in, it felt like, oh, they really are about to do something. <laughs> like yeah. You could feel the, the brain power of something amazing. Yeah. Happening. Yeah.
1: Well, did were any of your siblings as kind of uh, mono focused as you were on on anything? I mean, is that was that a family trait? The
2: only thing I could trace it to is my grandfather produced jazz. And so he produced Sarah Vaughn and oh, wow. Washington. And he did the first Janice Joplin album. I mean, he literally did Charlie Parker in the, the late forties. Wow! So I, I had this person that basically was a hustler. And as just a poor Jewish kid, he found a way to, to record jazz artists. He would pay them out of his own pocket and get the records printed and then sell them mm. himself. Wow! But it was Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie because the record business didn't quite exist yet. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there must have been a part of me that thought, oh, you could do anything if you work hard, if you outwork everybody, yeah, and you, you care and you're passionate and you love it, that anything is possible. I think that must have been planted in my head, seeing yeah. what he did. And did, do you, did the... Um,
1: when your folks split up, because you were... 11? Was that what it was? Like 14 or something. 14. Did that, did that, do you think, were you already sort of like comedy obsessed? Were you already like in all this stuff? And then
2: do you think it got deeper when your folks split? I think it just turbocharged the whole thing. Yeah. In a number of ways. One is I think for all of us, everyone gets wounded at some point when they're a kid. Yeah. And it makes you sensitive And then suddenly you see the world, like you understand people's feelings. Yeah. You know, like when you're hurting, you can see the hurt in other people. And as what I became a storyteller, and I didn't realize at the time that I was filing away my observations of people's suffering and how they were struggling through. And that's always the root of all comedy is just trying to get through something, trying to survive something, trying to accomplish something, make life better. Chandling always said it's obstacles to love and connection, and mm. I, I think in, at that time I just couldn't believe it was happening. It, you know, because you're a kid and everything feels safe, and then yeah. suddenly you're like, I can't believe I gotta go visit my dad on the weekends. Or yeah. Then I had to go visit my mom on the weekends because for a while I lived with my mom, then I lived with my dad, and it was just very chaotic. Yeah. But in a weird way, I always thought well, this is life, right? I knew about Richard Pryor. I knew he was raised in a brothel. And uh, I used to think, I don't think this trauma is bad enough for me to get Richard Pryor-level funny. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is Jewish Long Island bad. This isn't really bad. So I was kind of jealous that it wasn't actually more painful.
1: You should have talked to your folks and said, hey, can't you do something like a little worse to me?
2: Yeah, shake it up a little bit. Yeah, can't you like...
1: (laughs) Keep me in a shed somewhere for a while. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, when you know, did, did you have, did you set out with an idea of what kind of comedian you were going to be? Like, did you think like, did you have any models that you were shooting towards? Yeah.
2: I mean, there were people that I love. I, I swear, Andy, I was just so bad. It is amazing that I got any toehold because it, mm-hmm. When I listen to a tape of what I was doing at 17 years old, yeah, it is your worst freak at an open mic that you've ever seen. It's <laughs> just so terrible. And I must have had some sort of youthful charm, but it was god awful. And there were people that I loved. I was a big fan of Bill Maher at that time. Uh-huh. He was on The Tonight Show a lot. I always thought Bill was really great night. And I thought like, oh, that's kind of what I'm like in some way. Like maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm like observational and have a little edge. So I used to always say to Bill Maher, I'm I'm like the new, like not, not great Bill Maher. <laughs> you know, I'm the half ass <laughs> Bill Maher. <laughs> and I loved Lano and I used to go see Seinfeld in the city and Gilbert Gottfried and Howie Mandel. I used to go to Caroline's in the city. I'd take a train at like 16 and go to the supper club and and see everybody, but I had no idea what it was. But probably like the Long Island comics, like Paul Reiser, because I thought, well, I guess I'm kind of like them. Yeah. And and so during college, I kept doing it, and then I started booking a club for Sammy Shore, who started uh-huh. a comedy store. He had a little club in Marina Del Rey, and he asked me to book it, and he paid me like fifty bucks a week, but I could go on every night. Wow. And that's when I learned how to do standup was by right. making $50 a week, booking the club and call, bugging all the comics, which I wanted to do. I right. wanted an excuse to bug people. And I got a lot of stage time there and then slowly figured it out. How did you get to
1: LA to, to Marina Del Rey?
2: I went, I went to cinema school at, at USC. Oh, okay. And, and only took cinema because there was no stand up major. Wow. I just thought, what is it in the world of comedy?
1: Yeah, yeah. But
2: not really with an interest in the program, which was writing. Yeah. Because I thought, well, you know, I'm going to be whatever. Harold Ramis. I'm going to be in Ghostbusters. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then slowly realized, I guess I'm not going to be in Ghostbusters. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully one day I could write a Ghostbusters. Do you, do you
1: have, because I definitely have this, like... Well, it gets better as I get older, but like throughout my life, I've had very little middle ground in terms of my view of myself. I'm either the greatest thing in the world or I'm a complete piece of shit. And -hmm. it's like a, you know, like a seesaw that just one, one is up and one is down. And then I, it's another thing that drives me or that just is ironic and hilarious to me is that I got into a business that, where you can be feeling great about yourself and you, and then one phone call can make you feel like, Oh no, yeah. you're, you're done. That's it. It's one, over. one
2: tweet, one yeah. Instagram comment or something <laughs> just gets you. They just know how to just,
1: well, no, you I comment. I had shows that premiered and then a week later, you know, and every, and then a week later, Oh, it's doing really well. And then a week later, it doesn't look good. And I, like, yeah, how does that awesome. happen? I thought so, we looked so good. Painful. You know, so it's,
2: it's so painful and you put in like whatever a year or more of work. Yeah. Uh, maybe sometimes two years. Yeah. It's very weird to be, you know, living a life where you put your heart out there and someone can make it literally disappear. Yeah. Instantly. Like, oh, all of that. And and when they make it disappear, they're like, this is worthless. Yeah. It must be eliminated from the earth. Yeah. There will be no more transmission yeah. of your heart. And I would, I'd be so devastated. I mean, I had certainly three or four pilots that didn't get picked up, and I couldn't believe they didn't get yeah. picked up. I did one with Amy Poehler uh-huh. and Kevin Hart that. and Jason Siegel and was that, January was before, Jones. Was that before Freak, Freaks and Geeks or right after? It was uh, right after. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe that they wouldn't pick it up. Yeah. It was called North Hollywood. It was about young people trying to break into show business. And... Kevin Hart was so funny in it. Everyone was so funny in it, and I really thought that they would go, "Yeah, clearly you found everyone who's going to be a big star." So at yeah. the very least, let's let's retool this, right? Uh, and they just said, "Well, you know what? We've decided that ABC is going to be more like the ABC of the late '70s when we had Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley." So we really don't want this sense of humor. Which had. was what? Which was I don't know. Kind trying of to find and... a morph between freaks and geeks and curb your enthusiasm I at see. the time. Yeah, yeah. And and I was like, so none of these people I found you're interested in. Nope. We just would like to never talk to you again. Yeah. <laughs> and and then you question if you're talented. You question if you're sane. Yeah. It's it's very hard to power forward because you go, well, that's kind of the best I got. Yeah. Uh, and that was in 2001, I think 2002. Uh, but for me, I all I always couldn't believe I was in the business. Mm-hmm. So anytime things crashed and they did a lot early in my career, I always thought, am I allowed to do the next one? And when I was allowed to do something next, that was enough. Yeah. as long as I wasn't kicked out of the business, right. I felt pretty good that I was in it at all.
1: Did you in your in those years have a fallback plan?
2: I never had a fallback plan because I always thought I could be at the lowest level of comedy and be pretty happy. Yeah, I mean, I okay. was the, I was the MC at the Improv and I'd make like whatever thirty five or fifty five bucks a night, and so yeah, if I worked four or five nights, I'd make two hundred fifty bucks, three hundred bucks. I had a a job at Comic Relief. I made two hundred bucks a week helping raise money for the homeless. So I'm like, yeah, I can live on. I could live on five hundred a week. My rent was four twenty-five. You know, the the, the math worked for me to survive. Right, right. And and I thought, you know, I get to go on stage and introduce Ellen. You know, back Mm -hmm. in nineteen eighty-eight, like this is pretty cool. Paula Poundstone's here. You know, so that like I always say to people, if comedy paid as much as playing the spoons, I still would have done it. Yeah. The fact that there was any way to make a comfortable living was an incredible bonus, but there was no aspect of it that was financially driven. And then still, it's. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy
2: gem of a detour.
1: Can't you tell my loves are growing? What starts making you think that you can go from standing on stage and telling jokes to creating a TV show? Is it just because that's what everybody else does? Or did you find yourself feeling like the comedy you wanted to do was, wasn't going to be just held by the stand-up stage?
2: Well, I've learned some writing at USC. You know, I dropped out after a year and a half because I just didn't have enough money to pay my tuition. Yeah. and. I I got an apartment with Adam Sandler and, he, you know, he was on MTV VJing at the time he was on remote control. Yeah. So he had a little, a little more heat than us, but not much, but there was always a feeling like, Oh, Adam's going to hit. We all just believed in it. Cause we just thought he was funnier than everybody.
1: Right. Right. And, and he's, and then he also is just like, if you meet him, he just got tons of charisma and charm and yes. he's like one of those people that you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's what I, a movie star I, I, is.
2: And also in the early days, yeah. he would turn on the charm. Yeah. Like right now, you have a muted Adam. Yes. Because Adam works hard and he has a family, and like me and like you, he's just tired. Yeah. But imagine 23-year-old Adam. Yeah, yeah. You know, Adam had a lot of energy and ambition and enthusiasm. So when you hung out with him at a restaurant, he really tried to make you laugh. Yeah. Like yeah. he was a great person oh, to hang fun. out with. He loved to crack you up. I'm, you know. I guess it's like, you when you were like Conan in the room at SNL or the Simpsons, when you have yeah. just, you're just, your chi is exploding. You have so uh-huh. much energy. And then every once in a while we would think, I guess we should write something for Adam. Like something's going to happen. Can we prepare for this? Like there must be a movie or a TV show. And then And When you say we, friend, who who's we? Well, you know, I was friends with, you know, his friends, Jack Garaputo, who went Mm -hmm. on to produce his movies, and Tim Hurley, who wrote a lot of his movies and went to college with him. And so, you know, there were some really talented friends, and everyone had a sense of there's going to be work soon, and we better get ready to do it. And so Adam got SNL, and everybody was trying to support him with any joke ideas or sketch ideas in the first year when he was just trying to get any acceptance and then it turned into oh adam and tim wrote a movie and then I, I would you know go up and do some rewrites on the movie with them and and so i just got kind of pulled into you know that world of how do we how do we support each other you know uh-huh. it was very collaborative and really fun i mean sitting around trying to think of happy gilmore punch up jokes right right there's nothing better than that and i met stiller around that time and did the, the sketch show with Stiller but I didn't really know how to do anything I just mm-hmm. I, I was just fake it till you make it whose but idea I think was, everybody was
1: whose you know? idea was the Ben Stiller
2: show well he had this show on MTV he did with Jeff Kahn, which was kind of like the Larry Sanders show it was behind the scenes of a sketch show and then hmm. I don't remember played that. the hosts and it was really really funny he did a YouTube parody which was incredible like YouTube um, it was kind of a parody of Get Back. It was like you two play in the roof. Oh, uh, really? And uh, and no one is around to watch. And and he had a great uh, Richard Greco parody called Looker, which was really funny, <laughs> like a comedy <laughs> parody. Uh, and so when that went down, Ben had some interest at HBO. They wanted mm. a sketch show, so we pitched this sketch show, and then they sold it to Fox. And so suddenly this little sketch show for HBO was like, a, a real show a on, a, on a show, network television yeah. network. And we had never worked at that scale before. Yeah. And so we just had to figure it out. And so we hired who we thought was funny, which was Bob Odenkirk and Janine Graffalo and Andy Dick. And Dino Stamatopoulos, Dino uh, yeah. was brilliant. Wrote for the show, wrote the skank sketches and so many great yeah. sketches and Jeff Kahn and Brent Forrester and Sultan Pepper wrote for that show and, and uh, Rob Cohen. Uh, It was a really amazing group. Yeah. But we're just winging it. Yeah. You know, the only one who knew what they were doing was Ben and Bob. Yeah. Bob really was on his, his game. He had been at Saturday Night Live for a, a few years. Yeah. And, uh, and that was really fun, but also miserable because we were just so tired. Like, I think people know how to produce things now. Like, they know how to shoot a sketch and they have the good camera and they have the editing system. We were still editing with like VHS tapes yep. back then. Yeah. Like, there wasn't no non linear digital system. Uh-uh. I mean, this is, you know, basically before anyone was on the internet. Yes. And, I remember. So everything was hard. Yeah, everything was a hundred times harder.
1: The beginning, the beginning of the Conan show, it was very much like that, and it was there was Conan and Robert, and they knew what they were doing, and then I think beyond them, well, and Bob, Bob, and Bill Odenkirk were there in the very beginning, like for a couple of months, yeah. they came to kind of get us, get us started in some nebulous way that I didn't quite understand <laughs> how that works, but yeah. it was all new to me. I didn't question, but it was the same thing where I just. I'd ride a bit, and they'd go, "Yeah, that's really funny." And go shoot it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, or even <laughs> shoot it. Even even worse was on camera things when I started. You know, because just my evolution into being the sidekick on the show was just, I think, to keep Conan company. You know, and to yeah. have him have somebody bounce off of, and just I think to make it's interesting to see two people interact rather than just one person talk to. Oh a yeah. So I think that Robert understood that they were there would be just more chances for things to happen if Conan had me to talk to.
2: But then well, That was I, always my secret when I did the show is I would always turn to you. Yes, I mean, right. I was always very scared Thank as a you. young director doing stand-up. Uh, I, I wasn't doing stand-up at that time. I had right. stopped for a few years, and I, it made me very nervous to do panel. And my trick, you may never have noticed it. But, like, I would be very scared. I'd talk to Conan, but I always knew if I turned to you, you would get a monster laugh no matter what <laughs> I asked you. I would just go, what do you think, Andy? And you would always kill. And I always felt like I'll be okay because whatever happens, Andy will always oh, that's nice. grab that moment.
1: That's nice. Thank you.
2: I, I mean, I remember everything about that moment I mean, because Sandler was so close with Conan uh before he got the show yeah and so he'd be around our apartment in the earliest days when sailing got snl yeah and so that moment like oh conan's getting his own talk show i i I watched it very carefully because it was bob and it was dino and all these people yeah i remember that sketch you guys did when it started and if you could recap it because it was on the first show maybe where He's excited for the first day, and at the end, he hangs himself. What yes, was that he sketch? Does. <laughs> He's, he just says like,
1: "Oh no, it's the day of my first show," and he and it's. I think there was, you know, it's just kind of a normal montage of normal preparing himself things, and there was this guy, this actor that Louis C.K. knew called Joe Dolphin. Joe, uh, he had uh, Louis had used him in a short film, and he just kept he he was in the in the bit over and over saying. You're not as good as Letterman, like just taunting him <laughs> till you see Conan getting into a suit and putting on his tie and going, All right, let's do this. And then standing on a chair and hanging himself, you know, like, and then seeing his feet drop.
2: Um, I love that.
1: Yeah, which is a pretty, you know, pretty bold opening for your show that, like, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> Get ready, everybody. Here comes me killing myself.
2: Uh, He owned me for life at that moment. (laughs) I just, I thought we got in, we got in. Somebody, somebody of our world is now in control.
1: (laughs) We were in the same boat though, with that, with like the editing, like you you were talking about. I would, you know, I'd shoot these remotes. I'd go out and shoot a remote. You know, one of the first things, one of the first interviews I ever did, Now, you know, I do this thing and this is, I'm interviewing people pretty frequently for a long amount of time. And I've, you know, and I've paid attention to it and tried to get good at it. Um, But the first thing I did, I was shooting a remote with just lots of different stuff at Mardi Gras. And somebody was like, "Um, we arranged for you to go to Little Richard's hotel room and interview Little Richard. (laughs) And I was like, okay, how does one do that? How does one interview Little Richard? And it was it was just one of the strangest things I because nobody knew who the fuck I was and I looked like I was twelve and so I go to this room with little Richard who is wearing like a choir robe and who has the largest head of any human being I have ever seen.
2: <laughs> well, that's it the look, Griffin theory: big it, head, big it, star.
1: Yeah, it, but I mean, his head is like it looks like a Greek statue or something, you know, and and just. Just a, a truly unique looking uh, man, and and then I get I got through it. I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, how I did, but I got through it. And that was the same thing, you know. You go and do these remotes, come home, and you would edit them, and it would take hours and hours and hours because <laughs> there was no digital. You had to go through these tapes and fast forward yeah. and rewind, and ah. Oh. It was
2: just it's so much work. I mean, yeah. I remember I was watching uh on YouTube recently one where you were like fishing where you have to fish with your hands and you're like in yeah. a stream somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was underwater
1: shots. Yeah. And was. <laughs> that was a TBS show. Yeah, that was down in uh Oklahoma. He started doing the 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 foreign shows, you know, like the the international shows, the travel shows, and that kind of took up the remote portion of the show which i you know yeah. at this point i'm not i'm not sad that i'm not going
2: to <laughs> you know like and yeah. then i'm but not there's a going moment to the, where people stop yeah the right? miss like, universe like if you watch pageant. letterman there's yes. a moment on letterman where like letterman was always out in the world and then suddenly he would only go to the deli next <laughs> yes door. exactly He was done coffee in the copy shop van.
1: downstairs yeah. <laughs> yeah if it's in the building he'll go to it but yeah
2: yeah yeah, he no, won't it's, it's, go to Jersey anymore. It, yeah, it's 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 over. And there was they were like all these wild short films. But I get it, you know, you just get tired. It's exhausting. Like I'm doing a short film right now. I'm hosting the Directors Guild Awards, so mm-hmm. I do these sketches when I do it, which is just Judd Apatow talks to directors about directing, and I just interview on Zoom everybody who's up for best director for a movie. So okay. it becomes can I make two three minute comedy films starring Jane Campion and
0: Spielberg.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Those those notorious (laughs) knee slappers. (laughs) And, uh, and it's so fun to, uh, you know, to talk to them and, 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 you know, riff with them for 30, 40 minutes and cut it down. But it is a full-time job to get six minutes. Like it is two, three weeks of work to get six good minutes.
1: Right. Right. Is it, um, is this, is it going to be virtual or are you going to be actually there in a tuxedo?
2: It's, uh, it's real. It's, a, oh, it's wow. in person and, and, and actually a very fun award show. It's also doesn't air, which I like. Oh yeah. Cause that's how not entertaining I am, which is it's the third time I've done it and still no one wants to air it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, was like like, the I wasn't channel. aware of, you, of your award hosting career. I didn't even <laughs> know about it. You've really kept it under the radar. Well,
2: I thought it was like, you know, I started the directors and then I moved. Maybe I do, uh, I don't know, SAG and then the yeah. Globes and then the Oscars. But it is just, it's flatlining at directors.
1: <laughs> 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 oh, oh, well. Now, speaking of which, what what what's the real transition? Like, what happens that's your real transition from, from TV into film? Uh, from Freaks and Geeks, which is just... Like just that show, I think will live forever because, you know, both of my kids when they were 13 just fell in love with that show. And I think that you will have, you know, it's like Teletubbies, but for teenagers, you know, it will it will never get old because, you know, Teletubbies, there will always be babies and (laughs) there will always be 13 year olds who will understand the smart girl trying to be dumb and wearing clothes that completely conceal her body like that's, yeah. you know, yeah. that's like
2: lived all those yes, moments. Yes. And and it's heartbreaking. You know, when you're a kid, you just so want to be loved and you want friends and you want people to respect you. And you're so scared of just when yeah. people call you out for being different. Yeah. You, you know, you're insecure. I know. And
1: of what, I that's always I go back. What was I scared of? What was I, I was yeah. I said also getting in trouble. I was always so afraid to get in trouble. Like, what would they do? They're not gonna <laughs> shoot me. What is what's happening? Why was I so worried? Like, why couldn't I yeah. talk to anybody? You know? Yeah.
2: But anyway. I think Paul was had he, Paul just had a great take on that. Yeah. He really felt like those people were not served in the culture. The funny thing is now they're the whole culture. You know, who yeah. Paul was trying to reach with freaks and geeks is now everybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it
2: almost doesn't exist anymore. The idea of nerds, because right. the nerds oh, are no. the cool people. They're the bullies. Uh, <laughs> they're, and culturally, they're the bullies. <laughs> hey, that, that's right. You know. But and by the way, we knew that then, and we talked about it because we said cocky nerds. Yeah. You know, because the the nerds would hang out with each other, and they were into comedy and Monty Python, and they were scared to death of the intimacy. And but at the same time, they looked down on the football team. Yeah. They, they, they knew they were better, right, at least right. in their minds. Yeah. And that's what we found so funny about like Sam Levine's performance and Mike yes, exactly. It was also, it's like terror and arrogance. Yes. At the same time. Yes, exactly.
1: And well, but you know, deserved, because you do, these kids are smart enough to be able to look forward enough to know that the kid on the high school team is an idiot and he's going to be selling tires. You know, not yeah. that there's and, anything wrong with selling tires. Stop Most your email. very
2: wealthy about that. Yes. Uh, yeah. But I remember there was a scene with Steve Higgins, uh, in in the finale. Yeah. Uh, and Steve Higgins, uh, who is the, the co-host of The Tonight Show and is um, the producer of Saturday Head Night Riot, Live yeah. and one of my yeah. oldest friends in comedy, where he plays the AV guy. And there was yeah. always that guy at our school was Jack DeMacy, who ran like he was he taught film and ran the radio station and uh, Roy Dipple and they were the guys that all the media kids were into. Yeah. And it was this scene where Steve basically says, like, you are the cool guys and yeah. here's how their life is going to go. And here's how your life is going to go. And he has this incredible speech about about it. And it is I think some of those kids did turn into Bill Gates or or Steve Jobs. Sure. And that was that was the, the idea of it. Sure. And and Freaks and Geeks actually happened after I made a couple of movies. You know, I I did heavyweights, which in some ways is a precursor to Freaks and Geeks because it was about. A summer camp for overweight kids yeah. that was bought by a Tony Robbins, like an evil Tony Robbins type figure that was right. t- Tony Perkis, played by Stiller, who uh-huh. was going to make the summer into an infomercial so everyone had to lose weight, yeah, uh, or the infomercial wouldn't work. And uh, and then we did um, Cable Guy mm. in 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 '96. And so when I went into TV, it was because I had just. I had made two movies I loved, but they didn't do well enough. Yeah, and I, I licked my wounds by running to television, and then when everything got canceled on oh, television, gosh, I, I licked I, my I wounds it. by running back to movies. Yeah, I that's terrible
1: of me. I got it wrong. I thought I thought that Freaks and Geeks came before the movies. I didn't realize an so easy old. IMDb search of you would have done. But there's too many got, there's too many words. Speaking of I ADD. Got,
2: yeah, I've got ten years of, of, of pre that. That's how old I am now. You know, you know, you're old when you're like, yeah. I mean, I remember when that happened thirty years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. Really, like the history is really like thirty-five years at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, yeah. No, I don't even. I hate thinking about that stuff because yeah. it just then it you know it begs another question. Like, well, you know, <laughs> life is finite. So um, if all these years have passed, shut up. Never mind. You know, never mind.
2: You have four um, years left. Enjoy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When when uh, getting married and having kids starts to enter the picture, does does that change anything in terms of how you make comedy? Like, do you start to think of it more in terms of supporting a family or is it still just you trying to do what you want to do?
2: In the beginning, it really was like, "Oh man, so I have to make a living." That you know, my little theory about you know making six hundred bucks a week was not going to work anymore.
1: Yeah, because there was right. Were, you know, kids. And, yeah, and, kids and, eat and, money. And,
2: yeah, and, and you know, Leslie was uh, doing really well, and she you know, did Georgia the Jungle, and 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 I was trying to see if I could get my career going in a more serious way. You know, you start thinking about, I guess I need money for college. It, you know, Everything everything changes. But, yeah, you know, for a long time, I couldn't quite figure it out. I couldn't figure out why nothing was successful. I liked it all. And I think that's what messed with my head, which is I liked Freaks and Geeks. I liked Undeclared. I didn't understand why they wouldn't catch fire. Yeah. And they would get canceled. And then, then, then like a whole bunch of pilots didn't get picked up. Like three pilots in a row. And I thought, man, i j I'm just out of think. And I used to say I feel like an independent rock band that has like hundred and eighty fans at a club and they are cool, but like yeah. no one else likes them. Yeah. Like yeah. why doesn't anyone else why does anyone else like them? Right. Uh And I like them. So in my head, I'm like, I don't care. I'll be Husker Du, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I I love those types of artists. Yeah. And I started thinking, well, I guess that's it. And then I met uh, Will and Adam, and they asked me to produce Anchorman. Mm -hmm. And then when that was successful, suddenly people were like, oh, maybe you know what you're doing. And they were a little more open creatively to the next Ideas, which was the forty-year-old virgin and mm-hmm. and knocked up, but it really was the the. I really rode the success that Will and Adam had, uh, and and got some credibility out of being a participant in that mm-hmm. project.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing is that um, nobody here will take a chance on you unless they perceive the odds to be low. You know, like that yeah. you you've you've and I always look at it as like that. You've made some money for somebody, Uh, you know, like
2: that's, that's the whole thing.
1: Yeah. That's so, OK, thing. come over here. And I got you know, and then when because if people question why Judd Apatow say, hey, he went over there and made all that money for them. And they went, oh, OK, OK.
2: All right. Yeah. yeah but when have got a lot of failures. Honestly, people just go, oh, the guy who nothing works out for. Yes. Yes. I don't know if we want to make a movie with him. Yeah. And and you just need something to break through for yeah. people to go oh I, I because a lot of a lot of Hollywood is uh, an executive having to make a decision that he can justify or she can justify to their boss. Yes, absolutely. So so I'm not nuts for making a movie or a TV show with that with him because he he's proven himself. But I mean I didn't really prove myself for about seventeen years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's
1: good. You kept at it. Way to go, little buddy. Um, yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I remember when Paget Brewster, the part in in my first sitcom uh, controls the universe, was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paget Brewster played my boss, and a part was written for her. Victor Fresco, the guy that wrote the show, had worked with her before, and we heard from the network. Well, she's been in a lot of pilots that failed. And I think at that point it had been, it was like 15 or something. Some eleven yeah. George looney numbers. Yes. Like, you know, she's been in pa- a lot of a pilots that failed. So we don't want her like as if she has some sort of stink on her. You know, it's like, well, she's just a cog in a wheel. And she's demonstrably talented and charismatic yes, and, and, you know, and has worked forever. Uh, you know, has worked since that day, but we had, we, you know, we cast with somebody, we had somebody else in the pilot. And then finally they, they let us have her and, and reshoot. But that was just, that was really shocking to me that why should she be, uh, you know, put her neck on the line
2: for pilots that she was cast in. It's, you know. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I had that so many times where I would say, let's make, jason siegel the star of this show and they're like no and i'm like what about <laughs> seth no no and uh and i just i i couldn't understand it it seemed very obvious to yeah. me what was going to happen to them right and thank god we found jay baruchel for undeclared so you know they were all incredible yeah and but it, and then we found ways for them to be on the show anyway yeah but uh and that was always the game you know, so right. you try to get Seth to be the lead. They say, no, you hire Jay as lead. And then you make Seth, Jay's best friend. Right, right, you know, right. Get you know, him in there, there however. Jason yeah, is, yeah. Jason's a long distance boyfriend to Carla Gallo. And like it's all a scam yeah, yeah. to like find a way to win. To those get those debates.
1: guys in there. Yeah. yeah.
2: And also, and
1: it's not even, it's not even, a, it's not even really a scam. You're just making sure your movie's good with these, yeah. with these known quantities that are known to you, but not to them. Um. Well, I mean, you've done so. Is there stuff that you? Is there something that's missing for you? Like, like w- as you go forward, like, is there something that you'd rather be doing? Is there something that you haven't done yet that you want to do, or is it? Do you look forward and just kind of see more of the same?
2: You know, early on, I met Ron Howard. I was doing some consulting on The Grinch, and he said, "You know, I just try to keep like my." my head in a space that when i make a movie it's like when it's over it's like putting a painting up in a little gallery and at the end of my career there'll be all these paintings on the wall yeah and i think what he was trying to say is i don't want any of them to feel like the most important thing i'm just going to keep doing the work right and that's helped me i've really thought about that a lot don't make anything The the most important thing in your life. Nothing's going to determine your career. Just be really passionate about the one that you're in the mood to do now. Yeah. And then later on, the resonance of it will reveal itself. So, you know, this is 40 did pretty well when it came out. But for some reason now it feels like everybody's watching it. Yeah, it's always on cable. It's always streaming, and people turn forty and they all watch it. And yes, yeah. oh wow! Yeah. So that that actually hit a little harder than it felt like it did. It was at yeah, the time. It's,
1: it's a very prescient movie. It's like it yeah, it's and it's it's another one. It's like it's another one that people are going to watch because it does kind of capture a very human turning point that almost everybody goes through. You know,
2: yeah, and in some ways, I think that's what I'm attracted to, like funny people is about getting sick and what type of wisdom you get from being in, in a precarious position like that. It changes how you look at life. Right. Uh, Like each movie is, you know, it's about marriage or having kids or your mortality, uh, mental health. I thought, you know, the King of Santa Island, I kept thinking, Oh, it's about sacrifice. There are people that are willing to die for other people. Mm -hmm. And, that was a topic I had never written about. And I hadn't really thought about it that deeply, how incredible those people are for making that choice in their lives. So each project hopefully is meaningful. So I don't really have anything that I'm thinking about, although I would like to do something in the theater because I feel like the process of trying to make something better over the course of a year or two, trying something out might be fun. And I, I always loved going to see those Neil Simon plays in New York, like Broadway bound. And, and it would be really enjoyable if I ever could have that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like the theater very much? I really do. I like, I like to go and I don't know much about it. So I think it would be fun to try to learn how to do it. Well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a scary, it seems like just because, um, you know, like my, I don't, you know, I just, like you said, I faked it till I made it. I, you know, I got, I got hired on a movie and I didn't, you know, I didn't go to any kind of, you know, Michael Caine acting school. And in fact, my (laughs) ADD only allowed me to watch about 10 minutes of that before I like, all right, I get it. Yeah. You make eye contact. There are people who are
2: great for that reason. I think that they're just very focused. And I, I find that sometimes when you have like ADD or, ADHD that you're very present. Yes, and I've worked with a lot of actors that I don't think took a lot of acting right. classes. I remember Janine Garofalo. I don't know if, if she took any, and she was so good at the Ben Stiller show and then at the Larry Sanders show. Yeah, she was incredible. Yeah, and everyone there was like from the Actors Studio. I mean, Rip Torn would talk about you know working with Marilyn Monroe right, right, in the right. Actors Studio, but Janine was crushing it. Yeah, and there are those people. They're just natural. You know, they're just in I'm, tune.
1: I remember, I, I heard Jody Foster once in an interview say, like, say, like, you can either do it or you can't. And there's varying degrees of that. Like, you can, like, yeah. if you can't do it, you can maybe work hard enough to be able to do it passably yeah. But nobody mm-hmm. that's great at it wasn't, didn't have the potential to be great at it when they were yeah. an infant. You know, it just, it yeah. just works that way. And that's. I feel that same, like my acting career, I just have learned on the job. I just have like, you know, it's just evolved as I've I've been on the job. And theater to me seems like such a like, oh no, that's like, that's (laughs) like martial arts and I'm a street fighter. You know, I'll just pick up a board and hit you with it, but they expect (laughs) you to, you know, do some sort of, something named, you know, flying crane or something. I don't, you know.
2: I've seen your Mike Brady. I don't know what you're talking about. You're you're being very humble for no reason.
1: Well, um, the third of these questions, and you've answered the first two, whether you know it or not, um, I, it's, it's very sneaky. And also, the, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's all nonsense anyway. Um, uh, what, what have you learned in, in this journey, this life, this drudgery,
2: <laughs> this trail well, exactly. of tears? Well, my therapist always says, you know, life is suffering, and yet we soldier on. Yeah, and I think that I've always been very interested in Buddhism. I learned a lot about it through my friendship with Gary Channing, and also a bit from Harold Ramis. And mm. I'm always reading it, and I always wish I got it more. Yeah, like I read it, but it, it doesn't all take hold. But lately, I, I, I've been trying to tune into this idea of groundlessness, where you try to they say drop the story and just be present Mm -hmm. and that life is about being comfortable with uncertainty and with the fact that it's always changing and if you could relax into that, even though it seems terrifying and weird, uh, uh, you know, it's like being at the top of a roller coaster that in a weird way, that's where your wisdom comes from with being completely open. So I'm, I've been trying to take that more seriously and it does work. If I get up in the morning and I just think about that for five minutes, my day is better because the other way is to really be trying to control everything and fight yeah. everyone and make sure everything is exactly the way you want it to be and tell everyone when they're wrong. And, and being in that kind of ego, I think is ultimately very painful and it never works. Yeah. You never, you never really pull it off. So someone well, I think said it's it, like trying to be a cylinder, being just yeah. completely open. It works. It works for people and
1: who are kind of awful, you know. Like it works for, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. Like it it works for Donald Trump. Like I don't think yeah. Donald Trump has any zen about him at all, or even you know, like the um, uh, in succession, you know the 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 you know the yeah the the the, know, the, yeah, the, the, uh, the the patriarch of that family. He he gets up every morning to control everything and he's fucking evil you know i mean so exactly. yeah so i i think you're right i think it is and i i i worked with a guy years ago in chicago who was in when i was in film production who was an artist and and but did film stuff on the side and we were i was he was said he was a buddhist and i was asking him about it and and he said you know the point is to not try and i said well aren't you trying to not try and he said yeah and he's like yeah that's it he's like and i was like well that doesn't make any sense he goes it doesn't does it I'm like no yeah, it doesn't yeah. and he's like well yeah. you'll see that's that's what it is you're you're trying to not try the, you know your whole life you're going to try to not try yeah. and i uh, i mean i understand what he meant you know it is it, it, you can't you can't really force anything uh you know and, What is
2: that sound of of one hand clapping you know yes. it's just those uh, koans uh Yeah, they are all true. You know, I really like Ram Das. He was in the Gary Stanley documentary that I made. And, you know, he talked about you have to see like life is just a dream. It's all silly. We all put on these masks and play these roles, but it's ultimately meaningless. But at the same time, you have your life and you got to do it. Yeah. And you have to make your living and you have to go through what life is. Yeah. But there's a part of your mind that's like has a sense of humor and a lightness yeah. about how silly most of this is. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. No money. Never money's always there in the way. So at some point you always, yeah. you gotta make money. You gotta, <laughs> exactly. you gotta pay yeah, you rent. To you gotta, yeah. Yeah. You gotta keep a roof over your head unless you go to Alaska and live in the wilderness. Yeah. And I'm too much of a pussy for that. So, <laughs> uh, well, Judd, thank you so much. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and seeing you. Uh, and, um, Good luck with the bubble. It's on Netflix. What, what day does it uh, start?
2: It'll appear there April 1st and it will never go away. Ever. It will be there forever. So
1: watch it. You
2: have no choice.
1: Really? viewers And sick uh, in the head. Uh,
2: well, sicker in the head, the new book of interviews comes out at the end of March. You can get it now. And all the money goes to the A 26 charity, which is a free tutoring and literacy charity for kids.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. And thank all of you. Thank you. And uh, thank all of you out there for listening. And we will be back next week with three, well, they're the same questions, but three more questions.
2: I've got a big, big love
0: for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Your Wolf production. It is produced by Lane Gerbig, engineered by Marina Pice, and talent produced by Galitza Hayek. The associate producers, Jen Samples, supervising producer, Aaron Blair, and executive producers, Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Make sure to rate and review the three questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts.
1: Can't you tell my love's a growing?
0: Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack, Fragrance